Let us pray together. God of life, we long to draw near to you. And we know that in your reign, you are inviting us to transformation. Help us to open our hearts to what it is your spirit is saying to your people this morning. Anoint us afresh. Make us aware of your presence within and among us. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Well, you know you've reached a hard saying of Jesus when the Old Testament passage is more gracious than the New Testament. (laughs) Although I hesitate to reinforce that stereotype about the Old Testament. Most of you probably know I actually really love the Old Testament, wild as it is. And, well, it turns out the Gospels are pretty intense, too, as we're reminded by this text today. As with many things in the life of Jesus... We're picking up here a tension that runs throughout the Bible's telling of God's relationship with God's people. Jesus is joining in a painful conversation that's been hashed out again and again throughout Scripture. How will God respond when the people called by God's name turn away, reject divine love, refuse to be changed by their encounter with God? You've probably noticed that when Jesus tells parables, there are a lot of symbols involved. People and things standing for other things, like a seed representing the word of God, or yeast that a woman kneads into a huge amount of dough, being like the kingdom of God. But not every parable is quite as involved as this one, or as allegorical. Now, some of you, you know, English majors will remember allegory, but we might not all remember how an allegory is different from any other kind of story. Allegories use characters and events to stand in for people or ideas or even historical events to make a statement about these real-life events. So in this case, as you might assume, the king represents God and the son who's getting married is Jesus. The slaves or workers are prophets that were sent to Israel And in Jesus' time, the disciples that are sent out, those whom God sends to tell people about the kingdom of God and invite them to be part of God's plan to restore all things. And the people who reject the invitation are the people of Israel over the years who were stubborn and rejected God's rule. And you notice we have here more than one invitation. In fact, There's even a mouth-watering description of the feast that's given. But it's really important for us, especially these many centuries later, to remember that this is an argument among Jews. When Matthew is writing this, this is not some Jewish Christian tension. Christian was barely even a thing at that point. But this is about a difference of conviction among Jewish people. Matthew's community... Jewish community was feeling a deep alienation from those Jews who were not following Jesus. 
And so, as our story goes on, just as the Jewish people or the, the Israelites killed the prophets that were sent to them, in this story, symbolically, now they reject Jesus as the one who was sent to deliver them from their sins and to usher in a new era of God's shalom, well-being, and wholeness for all people. But what we might not see in the story, but something that would have been really heavy on the hearts and minds of the people who first heard this, is the destruction of the city, which represents the destruction of the temple in the year 70. The temple in Jerusalem, which to this day has not been rebuilt. Matthew is writing to Jews, followers of Jesus, who had very recently gone through this destruction of their most sacred place. And in Matthew's telling of the parable, this temple's destruction is explained as judgment on the people for rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. But again, this text is part of an argument among Jews. Jews who followed Jesus and Jews who were part of other reform movements. All of them were Jewish people living under a brutal empire and trying to find various ways to live and survive in that context. It's not really so unlike the sharp and intense arguments we Christians are now having among ourselves as we see the weakening of some of our long-standing religious institutions, and as Christians in the American empire are trying many and varied approaches to thriving in an environment that's often hostile to love and humility, compassion, vulnerability, and hope. And as in Jesus' time, it seems that some have sold out to the empire And like Matthew's community and other Jewish groups at the time and Jesus himself, we tend to judge each other harshly because the stakes are high. We, as they, are arguing about what it means to be faithful and do justice, what it means to walk with God. And yet, while Jesus made very clear where he stood and who he was, He didn't spend a whole lot of time arguing or trying to convince his opponents. He mainly went about the business of the coming kingdom. Or you could say he mostly went about living as if Graceland was already fully present everywhere. As our story continues, God's feast will go on and the table will be filled. And so others, non-Jews and Jews who are willing to receive the message are brought in from the main roads, the roads that lead in and out of town, without attention to their worthiness, well, at least initially. Both the good and the bad, verse 10, are brought in. And then there's this question of wedding clothes. And when you hear the word friend in Matthew, that's not a good sign. It's more like, listen here, bucko. That's kind of more the tone. So what is the deal with this wedding robe? Through the centuries, Christians, different folks have tried to pin a specific meaning on this piece of clothing. But generally, the idea is that when you come to God's party, it's not going to take long for you to notice that you're being asked to change. 
you find out pretty fast that you can't really even fully enjoy the food without some inner adjustments. And so being part of this new kingdom that is here, that is coming, requires transformation. We have here echoes of putting on the new self. In uh, Colossians 3, for example, putting on compassion, clothing ourselves with gentleness and love. Or as St. Augustine and Gregory the Great were saying about this passage, the idea of putting on love, which is the essential garment without which everything else is meaningless, as we have in 1 Corinthians 13. If we don't have that piece of clothing, we don't have love, then everything else means nothing. And so we feel this tension between this broad welcome of passers-by, good and bad, and the need to put on the clothing of the kingdom. But this bit about being called and chosen, again, we are wise not to read too much into that. There were similar Jewish expressions at the time which essentially communicate the same kind of thing, that God wants everybody at the party, but everybody doesn't want to come, or they don't know how to behave when they get there. And so there's this need for a response. This is a bountiful and gracious and generous gift, and we're expected to respond. It's like getting the chance unexpectedly to play with a major league ball team, and on the day of the game... Well, nobody blames you for showing up in street clothes, but everybody understands that you can't take the field without a uniform on. And so this one guest fails to respond to the lavish generosity. And here, Matthew is giving a warning to the church, especially all of these non-Jews who've been gathered in. Yeah, you've been invited and you're absolutely welcome into the feast and everybody come. But don't waste time condemning those Jews who are rejecting Jesus. Make sure that you're dressed for the party. It's so easy even for us to fall into the same pattern that Israel is being critiqued for, believing that we are the chosen ones and expecting God's favor no matter what we do. And yet... It's still a little harsh. Is this guest being kicked out of the banquet at the end of the story? As we look to other parts of Scripture, and even other parts of Matthew, it's clear that while the parable ends somewhat ominously, the story of Jesus and of God's reign does not end here. Moses In uh, another part of the psalm that was read this morning, Moses is named as one who stands in the gap for the people, sort of ironically reminding God of divine mercy. And in Matthew, Jesus takes on kind of the role of a second Moses who has come to lead his people into freedom. And clearly, like Moses, Jesus is grieved over his people's stubbornness in their resistance to be gathered in to God. In uh, this very next chapter, in 2337, he's, he's lamenting, saying, Jerusalem, the city that kills its prophets and stones those who are sent to them, how often have I desired to gather you in, like a hen gathering her chicks, 
longing to gather them, and you were not willing. We see not only judgment, but also Jesus' compassion for the people. That God's judgment is always aimed at restoration. We see elsewhere among the prophets that God is ready to relent and to pardon. As Todd mentioned not long ago, that God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but wanting everyone to turn and come to the party. Love does not coerce us, but remains open to our willingness. And God's invitation continues to go out. And people continue to suffer the consequences of choosing to reject God's ways of justice and love. And most grievously, people continue to inflict suffering on others because they, we, reject God's ways. If we're honest, we've all been the ones refusing the invitation. We have all been at one time or another those who are surprised and delighted to be included in the banquet. And we are all at times the one who neglected to put on the clothing of the kingdom. And yet at the very end, at the end of chapter 21 of Revelation, the gates of the city of God are open. I couldn't get that image out of my mind this week. Not everyone has come in to the city, this new Jerusalem. But the gates are open. And to the end, the Spirit is saying, come. All who are thirsty, come. And it's not for us as human beings to make the final call about someone who's not put on the appropriate clothes for the party, as far as we can see, because as far as we can see is not really very far. Now, this doesn't mean we don't name evil and call each other to wholeness. Jesus certainly spoke harsh words, condemning self-righteousness and oppression of the poor, and pronounces God's judgment on his own generation. And he still went to the cross. His own methods were clearly prophetic, but not coercive. He didn't try to force the repentance that was so clearly and sorely needed. And as he died, he was praying that God would forgive the ignorant and scapegoating violence of those who opposed and executed him. So I hope you weren't expecting this all to be tied up real neatly. Because again, we are seeing the painfully faithful love of God, whose heart is broken over and over by human beings who reject God and choose many things over love. The gates remain open. Are we willing not only to come when called to the feast, but to put on the clothing of transformation, ongoing transformation for whatever it is in us that still needs to be clothed in love. Jesus' harshest words are always to those who believe they have exclusive access to God's favor, think they have things figured out, or believe that they're not in need of saving. 
But the truth is we each need to depend on God's grace to live as whole human beings who are open to God's movement in and through us. And the mystery is that we already live in the love of God and we are in need of God's saving and restoring power every day. So may the Spirit give us fresh courage to continue to say yes to God's reign within us and all around us. May we say yes to the clothing of the kingdom.